Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Carrier. Michael is an assistant director at the University of California, Davis Innovation Access in Davis, California. Michael graduated from UC Davis and has a PhD in plant biology. After three years at a breeding company in the private sector, he came back to UC Davis to manage its highly competitive strawberry licensing program. For over 20 years in this position, he has been serving as the university's liaison at the public-private interface and has acquired extensive experience in plant IP management and litigation. Michael is also an instructor at the UC Davis Public Intellectual Property Resource for Agriculture and Law School Licensing Academy. Michael is also on the board of Sipora. For anyone who may not be familiar with Sipora, it is an international community of breeders of asexually reproduced horticultural plants. Sipora brings together plant breeders, national breeder associations, intellectual property experts, and consultants from 27 countries whose joint efforts are aimed at the development, improvement, and harmonization of national and international systems of plant variety protection. And with that impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thanks so much, Lisa, for having me. I'm glad to have the opportunity. Well, it's really great to have you here. And thanks again for taking part in the podcast. I generally like to start these podcasts off by asking about your journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at UC Davis? Sure. Yeah, it's probably not surprising that I ended up in tech transfer working in in agriculture and specifically with plant varieties. So I got my start, uh, you would say, um, at a farm in California. I was raised in a small town on a farm. That farm is involved with uh, rice production and walnuts and and almonds and uh, olives for olive oil. So I did, I think, what many many farm kids do. Um, They turned to their local land-grant university for education. So I was off to UC Davis as an undergrad. I studied agricultural science there. And then a funny thing happened while I was at UC Davis, which is um, I became really interested in the sort of the promise and, and the premise of agricultural research. So I got hooked on on the land grant mission that from from an early age, and so I, I really sort of started dive into research um, after graduation with an undergraduate degree in agricultural science. I was uh, three years in the private sector doing plant breeding uh, on rice and barley at Anheuser Busch, one of the major uh, you know brewers in in the country, and so that was a great experience. Um, and from there, it became clear to me that really, if I was going to continue in the research endeavor, I really needed to get back and, and get going on a PhD. So I did that. I came back to UC Davis, um, dove into work in plant biology. My work was in functional genomics in rice. Uh, so I wrapped up a PhD there. 
And then uh, in a year of postdoc, I think I took a turn that would be resonant and probably rings true with a lot of tech transfer professionals. I began to think more broadly about career options, um, you know, beyond tenure track. And, and tech transfer was something that sort of rose to the top in that, that uh, paradigm. And I reached out to the tech transfer office on campus and had kind of a you know, quasi-internship there. And it really intrigued me, um, the intersection of science and, and business and, and law. Uh, and so after that year of postdoc, um, I jumped in to tech transfer. And it's been you know, more years than I care to admit at this point, but uh, it's been a, a really fascinating um, time, uh, starting with you know, plant variety licensing those many years ago. Um, spending many years with the strawberry variety licensing program, and then most recently, a more broad focus on the entire uh, UC Davis plant variety licensing uh, portfolio. Uh, so I think probably some common themes there with tech transfer professionals, but that's that's how I, I, I got to where I am now. My husband is actually the son of a farmer, and your family didn't try and get you to go back. I mean, my husband didn't go back either. So I was kind of curious. It's funny you would mention that because it was very much the plan, actually, you know, go to the land grant school, get get trained up and all of the good things uh, related to agricultural productivity, et cetera, um, with the idea of going back to the farm. Um, So I very much had that as a career trajectory um, and, you know, kind of found some other interests along the way. The good news is the farm is still going. I've got a number of cousins that are involved with that. Uh, So it wasn't, it wasn't a choice of, you know, pursue my interest or have the farm go away, which was great. Yeah, that's, I'm glad that it worked out that way. So let's talk about your office a little bit before we get into uh, all the plant breeding that goes on at UC Davis. Uh, We recently talked with Jeff Jackson from Santa Cruz and Reagan Robinson from UCLA on this podcast, and they we talked about how the UC system includes 10 campuses, yours and theirs at Santa Cruz and UCLA, Berkeley, San Francisco, Irvine, Merced, Riverside, San Diego, Santa Barbara. And then there's also these five medical centers and three affiliated national labs. Um, we know that there's a lot of autonomy between the offices. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how maybe your office functions differently than Jeff and Reagan's offices. Sure. Yeah, I think... Um certainly a lot of autonomy um, just to touch quickly maybe on the common themes across across the 10 campuses and affiliates uh, so the policy level guidance at the top level is you know consistent across the 10 campuses so um, you know the way we might take equity or we might structure deals around equity would have some common themes and some policy guidance and um, the way we distribute patent income to inventors, uh, for example, is consistent across the system. So if it's a strawberry breeder at UC Davis or a you know, nanotechnologist at UC San Diego, um, the royalty sharing provisions are going to be the same to the inventor. So some, some um, efforts to have you know, commonality across the system and then some efforts between the campuses to have communication as to best practices too, and and to kind of ensure that we don't sort of get a divide and conquer when you know different campuses are licensing to the same entity. So some efforts to uh, to have some standardization, and then as to the autonomy, um, I, I think one thing certainly that's unique about Davis is the the breadth of the technologies that we're working with. So uh, we're the only campus that's got a vet school, also have a medical school, and then you know as we'll 
speak more about today, quite a lot of activity in, in plant varieties, uh, agriculture in general. So I think those would be some unique aspects to, to UC Davis. Um, you know, the folks that work on the utility side of the house probably are better positioned to talk about, um, you know, the way, you know, structure of the office in a way it, it, it might operate differently from, from one to the other. Um, in terms of operation and the levels of separation from uh, sort of the, the flagship, the mothership, the UC office of the president, each campus has some variable level of connection to the functions that are provided at the central office around accounting, prosecution, licensing, support. Um, you know, some campuses, I think LA, for example, is, uh, I believe, entirely autonomous from uh, e even those accounting and prosecution and licensing support functions. Davis has some ties still to the to the centralized functions that are provided. Um, and so it, it varies in terms of central support as well. Um, certainly deal structure, complete freedom to pursue a uh, structure that makes sense uh, for, for each campus for all the reasons. Um, I, can, I can speak to an example of the autonomy as it applies to uh, the plant variety licensing space, if that, if that would be on point. Yeah, that would be really interesting, I think. Sure, yeah. So um, it just came up actually in the last uh, two months because uh, just in the last year, UC Davis that, that's involved in plant variety licensing, and so is our sister campus, UC Riverside, uh, to a considerable extent as well, involved in plant variety licensing. We instituted a once monthly um, Zoom chat, you know, Zoom, Zoom is the, the word these days, um, with, with folks that do what I do at Davis and Riverside. And um, an example that came up recently was we had in the last three years driven in part by um, an outcome from, from the strawberry litigation that we might touch on later, uh, moved pretty strongly away from a company as a licensee uh, for a number of reasons, including items that are tangentially re related to that litigation. Uh, at the same time, Riverside is building quite a strong relationship with that same company. Oh, wow. Uh, so <laughs> so I, I had questions from industry members in Strawberry and some of our licensees in Strawberry you know, they, they were um, reading in the trade press about this sort of building relationship with UC Riverside and called me and said, well, wait a minute, I thought you, UC, you were moving away from this company. And so it was an opportunity to articulate, no, no the campuses are different. We each have our own, you know, scope and, and, and mode and ability to engage with licensees as we see fit. So that was a pretty dramatic example of a departure between two sister campuses, and at least in the plant variety space. That's a pretty extreme example, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's hard. Uh, hopefully, whoever you were talking with understood. But yeah, I could see where that could create some friction out in the marketplace. Yeah, hopefully it's, you know, the, the, the crops are in such different spaces that um, I, I think it won't end up being a problem. But uh, yeah. Oh, that's it a great example. Yeah. How about a little bit about how your office is structured in terms of maybe licensing legal business analyst, um, your operations, things like that? Uh, yeah, sure. So the, um, the broad umbrella is that UC Davis Innovation and Technology Commercialization is, is broad umbrella under that two entities, um, Innovation Access, which I think could be most cleanly thought of as probably more the, tra the traditional tech transfer function um, in terms of it's where the transactions happen. 
exclusively. So, so prosecution and licensing. Um, of course, we intend to be much more than transactional in innovation access. Uh, and then our sister organization under ITC, which is Venture Catalyst. And so Venture Catalyst um, has a mission to provide campus entrepreneurs the resources and support um, needed to grow new ventures. So, so it's kind of in the name itself. It's about ventures. It's about startup. It's about uh, providing in-house support for on-campus entrepreneurs as, of course, a, a nice um, support or, or dovetailing function of what we provide uh, at Innovation Access. Uh, you know, we're working together daily uh, between Innovation Access and Venture Catalyst uh, to complement each other. Um, so, yeah, licensing uh, would, you know, in terms of the, the process would live at Innovation Access. It's something we do in-house, uh, engage in licensing. I think that's true of most tech transfer offices in, in the U.S., certainly UC. And then prosecution and legal, um, at least at Davis, and I think this is true across UC, we engage outside counsel for prosecution. Uh, so we're certainly coordinating with our inventors, coordinating with the patent attorneys, but the actual process is engaged uh, formally by outside counsel. Um, new venture startups, yeah, that really lives under Venture Catalyst, and that's been a big push over the last, I don't know, five to eight years uh, to, to, to move more aggressively into startup support um, with the formation of Venture Catalyst. Um, marketing is something that happens in-house. We actually have a dedicated uh, person in the office focused on marketing. Also quite a bit of activity um, with the support of undergraduates on the marketing side. Um, finance is supported, as I mentioned earlier, by the uh, Office of the President centrally. Uh, docketing happens at uh, law firms. It happens uh, in our office as well, uh, prosecution docketing. And uh, we, we do have a pretty, pretty aggressive, pretty active uh, intern uh, program, both um, with the uh, science and business side. So we have science slash business interns that are in usually two or three each academic quarter. And then in parallel, um, usually between one to three interns or externs, as they're known in the law school, uh, spend time in our office as well. So we have a pretty active um, you know, rotation or circulation through the office of interns, both on the business and science side and from the law school. So it, it keeps things really active, um, energetic, and uh, makes me feel good about being um, located on a campus to have all the energy of students in the office. Yeah, absolutely. Although with the current pandemic, we're, we're all a little <laughs> hampered in that regard, yeah. right? In, in the office in quotes, right? Yeah, exactly. The virtual office. Um, the virtual office. Yeah. Well, I want to switch gears and, and talk about a lot of the fun stuff that you do. And um, particularly UC Davis does a lot of incredible plant, plant breeding and has all these incredible breeding programs, which I know have been, been in existence for over 100 years. So I know as a land grant university, the university's played a major role in developing and managing, I think it's more than 350 different plant commodities that are now grown in California, everything from vegetables, fruits, nuts, grains, forages, ornamentals, and turf. So that's a that's a lot of uh a lot of varieties and commodities to deal with. Can you tell us about some of the programs that you see Davis has in plant breeding and all the different programs that you work with? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, it's an opportunity from the get-go to, to really make a shout out to the, the world-class breeding uh, that happens at UC Davis. So of course in tech transfer, our opportunity in tech transfer to engage is, is downstream of, of plant breeding. And, and so we're, we're sort of, you know, going nowhere without uh, great varieties to, to license. So we have really active programs in a number of crops that I'll, that I'll list. Um, and additionally, in the last, I guess it's been five to eight years, something like that, there's been the, the genesis of the UC Davis Center for Plant Breeding. So that's been an effort really to build up um, plant breeding, both in the, the research, but also the, the teaching side. Uh, so UC Davis for a long time has been world-class and it's going to sound horribly like I'm bragging, but I think we need to support, support no, my it employer. Is, it is impressive. You should brag. Okay. Trust All me. Right. Thanks. Thank you for that. I'm very active, of course, in um, plant molecular genetics, um, genomics, you know, sort of NIH, NSF level basic research uh, around plants as well. And there was some industry outcry uh, for some time saying, well, we, we'd like to have traditional boots uh, in the field of breeders as well. So the, uh, the Center for Plant Breeding is some effort to uh, bolster capacity around traditional plant breeding. And of course, um, marry the functionality that's really strong on campus with molecular genetics uh, and, and breeding, uh, traditional breeding. So that, that lives in the new um, Center for Plant Breeding. Uh, and then generally we see on campus, the campus sees a really good opportunity to bring to bear um, basic research as it applies to you know, functional genomics, um, new breeding technologies, and traditional breeding. And that, um, I think the view is that plant breeding programs on a land-grant university are best positioned um, when, when they're bringing to bear sort of all the basic science at the same time developing best-in-class varieties. So it's those best in class varieties are bringing value to the industries that they, that, that, that a land grant university is here to support and, and in doing, you know, providing all the teaching opportunities and the research opportunities and, and the, the synthesis of, you know, basic um, science with uh, more applied science with the development of varieties. So certainly that's the way the strawberry program, I'm happy to say, is now positioned. Uh, I think we're a land grant university in general, um, doesn't want to be, uh, to put it in another way, is to be seen as sort of just a, a commercial entity within, within, a, within a university. So to the extent that all this breeding is supportive of research and extension and teaching, that's the best fit for the breeding programs. And that's, that's where most of the PIs, probably all the PIs now are focused with, with uh, breeding in general at UC Davis. And so the crops are pretty extensive. Um, not surprisingly, uh, Mediterranean, uh, California, coastal Mediterranean, uh, arid subtropic type crop. I can run through the list. That would be helpful. It's, it's yeah. 20 or so. Okay. Uh, so alphabetical by um, starting with alfalfa. Uh, that's maybe more of a Midwestern focus, but California as well. Wow. Almonds. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds familiar. Yeah. I was going to say, I would not have thought of alfalfa in California, <laughs> quite honestly. Yeah, so a fair amount of production in the San Joaquin Valley uh, and Indio in the southeastern part of the state um, and, and some breeding activities around them. Uh, almonds would probably be a more natural uh, image for a California university. Um, barley, uh, beans, uh, yellow bean, lima, chickpea, 
uh, fig, uh, more of a classic uh, Mediterranean crop, grape and, and grape rootstocks. There were some terrific new um, grape scion varieties in the last year uh, with resistance to Pierce's disease, which is a, a big need for the industry here uh, and likely globally as well. Uh, oats, uh, peach, peach root stock, uh, pistachios is uh, a big uh, money earner for licensing for UC Davis. Prunes, uh, strawberry, that's the area I worked in for a long time. Uh, new program in triticale, uh, no varieties yet, but probably in the next year or two, we'll have some new varieties of triticale. Uh, walnut, uh, walnut is produced like 99.5% in California. Uh, walnut rootstocks and wheat, a uh, very active program in wheat. Uh, Jorge Dukovsky, National Academy member, uh, wheat breeder, uh, and HHMI uh, fellow as well. So um, really active programs. You know, you mentioned the Mediterranean climate, and I'm kind of curious there wasn't olive on that list. You know, I, I wonder if that might be coming at some point, um, because the industry really has started to take off in California. And... It's really a tie into a theme in general about plant breeding at UC Davis, and that is plant breeding for a given crop, a given species exists in general to the extent that industry wants us to be involved. So that can cut both ways. Um, fresh market peach in the last 20 years, the, the signal from industry was, well, no, um, the private sector has really picked up the mantle there. So at the time of a retirement of a, of a breeder, you know, the program doesn't continue. Uh, the flip side could be true. Um, you sure. know, the industry could come to Davis and, and um, uh, you know, ideally support um, sure. in, in all the ways, um, all of breeding. But, uh, yeah, definitely to the extent that it's uh, an active uh, uh, crop in California. Interesting. Well, that's a lot of breeding that's going on and uh, a lot of germplasm that's being created. So how do you handle this from a protection standpoint? I'm assuming you probably do a mix of filing plant patents. And I know you do that for your strawberry program, PVPs, PPRs, and then you probably do some straight licensing of germplasm as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you decide what varieties to protect and what form of protection you use or maybe how you decide which form of protection you use? Sure, the, the threshold decision of which varieties to protect is um, sort of fait accompli for us at Tech Transfer because we have a process at UC Davis has a process that may be common to other uh, land-grant universities in that there's a plant variety release committee uh, at the department level with sign-off at the dean's level when any new plant variety is, is proposed for release, whether it be a variety that's destined for public uh, domain or for protection and licensing. So that initial decision about should we go forward is largely made for us uh, by the time a variety arrives to our office. The decision about which form of protection we should use is that that's very much in our space in tech transfer. Um, and the answer there is that it, of course, depends on the crop. If it's, you know, for the longest time, if it was a seeded crop, we'd have PVP, but not U.S. plant patent. And now, just in the last year, as you know, um, PVP is available for asexually propagated uh, crops as yep. well. Thanks to the um, farm bill. Thanks to the, the farm bill, right? It happened just like that after so many years. Yep. <laughs> Seemingly overnight. Um, it was a big change. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It was. And and so we launched into an in-house analysis of might we consider 
the PVP structure for our strawberries and our trees are asexually propagated crops. And we see a lot of value there in terms of the, uh, the complementary support with, with EDV and yep. import, export, et cetera. I think on balance, the um, relative uncertainty, at least our read of um, the deposit requirement, it, I think has us um, on hold and pausing yeah. for the moment. Uh, the U.S. plant patent is, is, has worked quite well for us uh, for a sexually propagated crop. So I think when we have more clarity around how the deposit will work, uh, we'll be in a position to probably engage in a new level of analysis. And maybe you know, we would be thinking about protecting a strawberry under PVP or maybe both. Um, but for the time being, we're sort of sticking with the existing pattern. Um, of plant patent for asexually and PVP for seeded crops. We haven't we haven't um, used utility patents uh, for plant varieties. Um, the the protection that we have with the other regimes has been sufficient, uh, and we we haven't. Um, and I think this may be different from many land grant universities. We haven't engaged in licensing of germplasm per se. So. It's been about finished varieties, finished cultivars, rather than licensing out of the uh, underlying germplasm. That is different from a lot of other universities. Yeah. Yeah, Based it's really. I think. A, yeah, I think a distinction just on value capture and, and the interplay of value capture and and the way the campus is positioned um, with respect to supporting industry. So. One one could envision a scenario in in California at UC Davis where you know germplasm licensing could happen, but it just hasn't been the best fit. It hasn't been uh, what what industries here are looking for. They've been looking for finished varieties, uh, and we've got the capacity. The campus has the capacity to to produce finished varieties. So a different model uh, certainly, um, but for the time being, it's about uh, uh, finished cultivars. So that's the U.S. focus. I could turn to. Yes, I was going to ask you if you're doing finished varieties and protecting things by PVP, then it makes me wonder: Do you do PBRs in in other countries? And if so, I'd be curious to know which countries you protect in. And I'm sure that's probably crop dependent as well. It is crop dependent, and it's fairly extensive. So uh, yes, we do engage um, PBR rights uh, worldwide. Uh, for strawberry, which is the crop we file on most extensively outside the U.S., it'd be like 18 to 20 countries worldwide filing wow. the plant breeders' rights. Um, and then some of our other crops, I think, will be will, will be taking more of an international focus as well. It's both about impact, of course, uh, being able to license and have have our varieties have an impact around the world, and um, certainly market opportunity as well. If one wants to look at it that way, uh, so. I think that's the outside outlier would be 18 to 20 countries, something like that, uh, plant breeders' rights. And, and those decisions are generally driven by uh, our licensees. If they see a market opportunity um, in a given country, that's a signal, of course, for us to file. We will occasionally file plant breeders' rights at, at risk um, with without a licensee in place to begin with because we, we have some very strong signal about a variety that it, that it will work. Uh, but generally, we, we like to have feedback from a licensee that a uh, variety will work in country X before we go forward. And that's typical with most, most university tech transfer offices and their patent portfolio too. They'll, they'll generally wait to see if they have a licensee 
before going national stage on a PCT and then get input from the licensee, obviously, where they, they want to file. So it's similar in terms of approach, it sounds like. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the parallel there, but yeah, 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 right on. Yeah. You talked about your strawberry breeding program a couple of times now, and and I know it was in the news in the last couple of years that you had some litigation involving those varieties. For some of our listeners who may not be familiar with this litigation, and it was actually litigation involving some plant patents, which is pretty infrequent. Maybe you could just tell everyone a little bit about the case and ultimately what the result was. Sure. Yeah, I can I can um, just do the thumbnail sketch. There was quite a lot of press at the time, um, quite a lot of post-game um, analysis, quite a lot of post-game wrap-up uh, that would be available to listeners uh, if they wanted to search on um, regions of the University of California v. California berry cultivars. Uh, there's, in fact, I just looked today. I hadn't looked for quite some time. Uh, there's quite a lot. There's there. a lot out there for people to read if there, you really so. want to know. Yeah, it's easily <laughs> right. accessible. It is. So I won't try to compete with all that. But the, so the thumbnail sketch was two uh, PIs, two breeders that were retiring, departing the university uh, with the notion that they would take uh, plant material from UC Davis germplasm with them to the private sector, start a company. Uh, that was kind of anathema to the positioning of UC Davis around strawberry, which has been to support the industry broadly. Uh, so for a number of reasons, um, two parties ended up in federal court. Um, university prevailed to the extent and the endpoint, which is uh, return of the plant material, return of the germplasm um, back to the university. Uh, so, so that's the positive uh, outcome of a relatively time-consuming and expensive process. Oh, I'm sure it was super expensive. Yeah, it was super expensive. Um, but it was, you know, there were there were issues of principle there. There were issues of, um, you know, commitment to industry, et cetera, uh, at stake. And so, the the good news is the material was back at the campus um, in the hands of a new breeding program. So that was. The concern of industry for a number of years was, hey, UC Davis, you've had this valuable program that supported us for 40 years. Uh, please continue. Uh, so now we're the campus is positioned to continue and maybe not only continue, but to take it really to new levels. Um, uh, Steve Knapp, uh, reader uh, in the strawberry program now, had uh, really two careers, one in, in, in uh, public sector, land-grant uh, universities as a professor, and then in the private sector for a number of years as well. So came to the position ready to go and just bring to bear uh, all of the techniques of molecular genetics uh, with traditional breeding. And I think it'll, it'll have a great outcome. Um, new focus in strawberry, at least, uh, on consumer attributes, which, which is going to be a really critical um, focus. So I like to tell the positive aspect of the story, which is uh, the strawberry breeding program at UC Davis is back and better than ever. Yeah, it's alive and will go forward stronger than it was before, it sounds like. That's the expectation. And from, from my view, I, I, I would support that. That's a good result at the end of the day. that's a, I don't know if you could really ask for much of a better result, actually. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Painful as it was for many of us, including yeah, myself. Yeah, litigation is always extremely <laughs> painful, no matter what side you're on, in addition yeah. to the pain of the cost. So 
multiple pains with lit- patent litigation. So let's get off that nasty subject and move on to talking <laughs> I think about. We understand yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. And whenever I ask that question, I always get a little grumble, grumble. Um, let's talk about how many inventions. And when I'm talking about inventions here, it, we're talking about the plants and varieties and the germplasm. Um, would you say you get disclosed to your office every year? And again, you mentioned how the decisions made at the department level, but still, it sounds like a tremendous amount is is coming into your office. There is, yeah. I mean, uh, so the other is to focus on plant varieties distinct from the utility side of the portfolio. Yeah. Something like 15 to 20 plant varieties per year across the portfolio, across the, the scope of uh, breeding activities. Um, and, and so that's... Um, yeah, it's a fair amount of, of bandwidth tax and work for a number of us in the office. Um, it, it means that we're very active in test agreements as a starting place. Uh, so when I checked uh, this week, we were something like 650 active test agreements. So that's, wow. that's a lot. That's the, the first step of, um, you know, being out in the field under, under limited uh, testing conditions, you know, pre-commercialization. Um, with with the goal, of course, of looking at uh, genotype by environment inter- interactions to understand if a variety is is something that's worthy of going forward. Um, and much of that late stage testing is covered under our test agreements in our office uh, because uh, the tests happen in, in commercial growers' fields uh, to a large extent once it moves off campus facilities. And then post uh, test agreement. If if the signal is to go forward, uh, as mentioned, uh, our office receives the uh, record of invention and the signal to go forward with uh, variety, and that turns into uh, license agreements in a way that's pretty unique to plant varieties, uh, meaning that the varieties are finished, ready to go. There's no de- de-risking involved, as there would be with so many utility inventions. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, it's very different in that regard. Yeah, it's so different. The paradigm is so different. You have um, a product at that point, whereas for every other technology, there is no product. Generally no speaking, product. Yeah. right? Yeah, no product in like phase one, two, and three ahead of the company. Still, um, you know, the plant variety is ready to go, ready for prime time, and so we're positioned to jump right into licensing from day one. Um, currently, um, north of five hundred active um, uh, license agreements. Um, and something close to that in terms of worldwide IP filings as well. So it's a pretty active docket, both on the, the IP, the protection side and, and the licensing side. Uh, but yeah, quite different in terms of the decision matrix around uh, going forward with the technology. Um, you know, it's it's 100 uh, percent. We're going forward yeah, with 100 percent of what we receive. Which is different than the utility patent situation where it's nowhere near close to that. Exactly. Same, same in our office. Yeah, that's very interesting. Now, how about your top five earning plan inventions? Um, can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, I mean, I, I took a focus on the top three because it's really the lion's share sure. of the income coming from three Let me varieties. guess it's strawberries. Strawberries at the top, um, followed by pistachio and walnut rootstock. And so between strawberry and pistachio, um, a little over 10 million per year in licensing income and the aggregate a plant variety portfolio, just over 11. So we had a, a high watermark uh, just this most recent year at UC Davis, a little over 11 million in licensing income on the plant variety side, um, yeah, driven by um, strawberry, pistachio, 
Um, and with quite a lot of upside on the pistachio, with the pistachio portfolio as well, um, globally. Um, and, and some, yeah, some favorable outlook, as I mentioned, for a great um, scions as well. Uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of the snapshot of, of income. That's pretty impressive. That's a lot of money off of plant varieties for a tech transfer office. Uh, that's it's that's been, very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, no pun intended, but it's been evergreen in the sense that um, <laughs> there have been generally varieties that, that come along to replace or obviate existing varieties in the market, you know, well within the, the lifespan of, of the U.S. plant patent. So it's all about it's all about the breeding. Uh, it's all about having really excellent breeders to to be out there in front of the market and providing what industry is uh, requiring. Now, I always ask about corporate partners, and it would be interesting to know how that works. If you, I'm sure you probably have them with respect to some of your plant breeding. It'd be interesting if you could talk a little bit about how that role um, and interaction works with the corporate partners um, there in the plant breeding programs. Sure. Um, I, I think this is yet another distinction between plant variety and utility where there is, you know, considerable corporate partnering uh, on the utility side. And it's certainly something we would be, we look for as to the development of plant varieties as well. The, the distinction being that the land grant model around agriculture, certainly in California, and I think more broadly, is that we're here to serve California agriculture broadly in a secular way across the industry rather than a single company. So corporate funding really takes the form of, um, you know, socialized funding across a commodity group by the way of um, funding that comes in from a marketing order board or a commodity group. So it's corporate in the sense that the, the entities that are paying into the commodity board are, are corporate often, but it's very infrequent that it's actually a direct um, sponsored research arrangement from a corporate partner directly to develop plant varieties. That being said, outside of California, one could imagine, and we certainly would pursue and be open to corporate sponsorship if it came perhaps from outside of the state, it would be tidier uh, to think about um, a deal structure where we might take in money from a corporate partner in Spain or elsewhere uh, to think about you know, licensing in, in a more closed way uh, where we have more degrees of freedom outside of California to do that. Um, but, but because of the way the breeding is focused and positioned in a land grant, um, the, the funding is uh, correspondingly structured uh, to be distributed across an industry rather than from a single um, entity or corporate partner. But the premise is still there. I mean, we're sure. certainly looking for um, support of breeding. So reflecting on past license transactions and partnership. My, what might you have done differently if you knew then what you know now? There, there is a unique aspect of um, obtaining, securing plant breeders' rights around the world, and that is that plant material actually needs to be physically provided in most jurisdictions for DOS testing um, under UPOV guidelines. And so, one one weakness that we've tried, we've been working to address, it's been. You know, somewhat problematic in the past is getting plant material into country in a timely fashion in situations where we don't yet know that we have a committed licensee 
Uh, and so we've often found ourselves needing to scramble to get plants into country, especially in countries where there's a, a strict quarantine. It can be a problem. Uh, Chile has been an issue for us over the years because of the quarantine there. Um, so that, that's been a problematic issue in the past. We've, we've identified a company in the last year that offers its services um, just, just to do the logistics around import of plant material into a country. So to help us get plants of walnut or strawberry, whatever it might be, through quarantine into testing facilities for DUS testing and also commercial testing. Uh, and that's an arrangement that's independent of an expectation that they may or may not be the licensee. So it, it we can retain some degrees of freedom around the choice of licensee, but still have plant material in country in a timely way. So I think that's that's been one of our bigger struggles over the years, and, and we're, we're looking to address that. Yeah, and again, that's something that's really unique, again, to just plant varieties. Right. So can you talk a little bit about what organizations you're involved in and what values you think they add? I'm, I'm sure you're probably, like many of your colleagues in your office, involved in Autumn. Um, are you involved in other things like LES or BIO? Sure. I've, I've been an attendee at LES and, and BIO off and on over the years, Autumn more consistently. Um, and Autumn has been more of a focus uh, for me and my colleagues working in the plant variety space because of the, the unique focus uh, at Autumn around the plant uh, special interest group. So there's a, a community of like-minded and uh, folks at, at Autumn that, work, that are working with plant varieties. And so Autumn has been a focus um, between those three, I mean, tremendous value in, in all three of those across the portfolio at UC Davis, but as plant varieties, really uh, more of a natural fit and home with Autumn. So you're also on the board of directors of Sephora. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with it and how it's helped you through your career? Sure. Yeah. So Sephora, um, again, the thumbnail sketches. Its, its focus is to uh, expand the uh, scope and enforceability, really the efficacy of um, IP frameworks for plant varieties worldwide. And it's for asexually propagated crops only. So, you know, fruit crops and, and ornamental crops, uh, different entities support seeded crops. So Sephora's focus is on the types of crops that we work a lot with at UC Davis. Um, the value, I've, I've been a member for over 10 years, and it's it's really been a tremendous learning opportunity for me over the years. It's, it's an incredible network of, of folks, uh, both with a U.S. focus, but also uh, globally. And to the extent that UC Davis is looking to uh, extend our footprint of licensing and protecting of plant varieties around the world, uh, Siapora has really been my go-to for... Um, best practices. It's really uh, an organization where when I'm there, I feel like I'm sort of in the, the with the global brain trust of plant IP. So I have a tremendous amount to learn from the group and I have over the years. Um, and so I put myself up for the board this year in, in some effort to try to make uh, something of a contribution back to the organization that, it, that has served me really well and, and hopefully my organization, UC Davis, well also. But the, the learning opportunities are endless. Um, in, in a more concrete way, there's actually something called the Siapora Academy, 
So that's a formalized um, set of learning modules um, directed and instructed often by attorneys. I would say most often by attorneys uh, with different, very topical um, subjects um, in locations around the world. A lot of it online now as well. So incredible learning opportunities. Um, and because it's a relatively small group, meaning breeders of, of the types of crops that, that I work with, it's an opportunity to be connected to decision makers uh, worldwide. So it's not uncommon for the, the director general at UPOV, the executive secretary at UPOV to be part of the annual general meeting of CIPORA. Um, you know, the executive management at the CPVO um, the year before last at the annual meeting, there was a federal judge at a very at highest level, I think, in China with respect to IP, uh, spent the week of the annual meeting. Um, uh, so that was fascinating to, to be really exposed to the cutting edge of IP as it's developing in China. And so that's just an example. Um, I think uh, they're taking up EDV now too. They're taking a, a a look at it to try and I think clarify it and and make it a little bit more concrete. If I'm recalling correctly, that I, I read that, yeah, because that that's a hot topic. And um, I know there's been litigation in in Europe involving that. There's I think a case now that's making its way through court here in the U.S. But that's always a big question mark, at least here in the U.S. and I think in other jurisdictions as well. Right. Right. So there's a huge lobbying component as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, sort of canvassing our industry to understand what the concerns are, what the positions will be so that those can be articulated to competent authorities around the world uh, in an effort to, to really strengthen the, the, the plant IP regime um, as it exists under UPOV and, and PBRs. Uh, so I think for me, it's been learning. Um, hopefully I'm at an inflection point where I can start to make some contributions back. Uh, but for, for folks, I would say in the U.S. and land-grant institutions that have a global focus, if they're beginning to have a global focus or they already have, um, the opportunity to expand uh, thinking uh, and be exposed to best practices, including very practical things like, um, you know, who have you worked with in Egypt? That's a really good attorney to help with plant breeders' rights. Um, what are you doing in Vietnam with your varieties? How's it going in India? These are all the questions that I'm asking or having asked of me at, uh, in the organization, and it's been really very helpful. Yeah, and it's hard to enough in some of some countries to find good patent attorneys, let alone find somebody who has familiarity with plant breeder rights. So, <laughs> so true. yeah, yeah, that's um, so true. So that's where I think that organization adds a lot of value besides the other things and the teaching and the the training that they offer. So, and speaking of training and teaching, I mentioned during the intro that you're an instructor at the Licensing Academy there at the university. Can you tell us a little bit more about your that program and your role in it? Yeah, sure. Starting with the notion that um, the Licensing Academy just wrapped up a 10-year run. So oh, wow. when I was in when I was an instructor last June, uh, that was the end of a of a of a good um, you know decade long effort, uh, and it was an effort that was a collaboration between the Davis campus based public intellectual property resource for agriculture PIPRA, in in collaboration with the law school on campus, uh, King Hall, uh, with support initially from the Rockefeller, um, and then additional support along the way. 
um, the goal of which was to uh, engage in capacity building around tech transfer with a focus on agriculture worldwide. Uh, so 10 years in, I was talking with one of my fellow um, you know, faculty members, presenters, uh, and his comment was that he thought we probably had engaged with much of the tech transfer professional cohort in Chile over the 10 years. So oh, wow. it, it had a really successful run. Um, I've since been in contact with folks when I'm out, I'm not out so much anymore on Zoom, but before that, um, you know, asking, well, is it going to continue? I'd like to attend. So I think there's actually ongoing interest, but um, my role there was to focus um, on, on plant variety licensing, as, as you might imagine. Uh, and, and the effort was, a, it, was a, it was a two-week program uh, with speakers across uh, the continuum of activities um, from protection, licensing, startups, how to position a tech transfer office in, in, a, um, in a regional um, space um, and, and included a focus for a half day on plant variety licensing as well. So it was fairly comprehensive, but with, uh, with a broad focus on, on agriculture. Wow. I'm not aware of anything else like it. So maybe you guys should continue uh, with the program. Maybe somebody will twist your guys' arm and have you pick it back up. Agreed. I mean, that's what I heard from from folks that were asking, is it going to continue? That The compliment to that was, I've been looking for something like it and I couldn't find anything like it. Uh, so I'll, I'll pass on another note to the, to the conveners. Yeah, uh, I've definitely heard from other tech transfer offices where people have asked me um, if I'm aware of any webinars or anything on that exact topic. So I think you could definitely find enough interested people. I hope you continue because it sounds like it was a great program. I thought so. Yeah, it seemed to be providing value. Definitely, definitely. Well, Michael, I generally like to close these uh, interviews by asking my guests if you had three wishes um, to be granted for your office or a vision that could be realized, what would that be? I got a couple. Um, I think starting with the notion that when we engage in, in licensing, whether it be plant varieties or more, more broadly across the continuum of technologies, the, the, the licensing endeavor is certainly important. Um, it's important in establishing impact, you know, uptake of the technology. But ultimately, what the campus likes to see, what, what my office likes to see is, um, you know, the genesis of a partnership um, that, that, that spans beyond the licensing engagement. Uh, you know, sponsored research, um, uh, uh, maybe internships, you know, with the company, et cetera, things that are really value add for the campus. So I think that would be item number one would be to uh, to have what I do in the plan, what we do in the plan variety licensing space, um, be leveraged into partnering. Um, and then there's a pretty, pretty, I think it's a pretty cool story around impact as it applies to plant varieties. And that is there's a pretty concrete link between what we do on the plant variety licensing side and its um, capacity to facilitate the transfer of know-how, so horticultural know-how. And arguably, a university, certainly a land-grant university, is really here about know-how. It's about knowledge transfer. And, and when we engage in licensing, that certainly is an important complement, and it's a way to have impact. But I've always argued that the broader impact we have when we license out a new plant variety 
is all the transfer of the production technology and the know-how, and especially globally when we have a master licensee partner that builds a business around um, licensing our planned varieties, strawberry in Spain or pistachio in Australia. And that master licensee partner becomes a really important uh, conduit of know-how between the university and the corresponding region of agricultural production. And so I, I, I would really like to see that um, component be boosted over the years and the story be told, because I think uh, often the narrative is, you know, sort of one-off licensing of varieties. It begins to look a little business-like, um, but, but really the complementary story is that there's a tremendous amount of know-how that goes along with the licensing of a plant variety. And arguably that's a larger impact and one that's resonant with the mission of, of the university, Land Grant University. And then of course, I think that um, number three, I, I think that uh, licensing of plant varieties is a, is a pretty cool thing to be involved with. Uh, so I, I, I would like to see our office uh, continue to have um, career paths for folks that are working in, in the space uh, and that we can maintain and build a compelling and inclusive uh, workplace culture around plant variety licensing um, so we can uh, attract uh, you know, folks to the endeavor. Um, so those are a couple of things, not, not completely crazy, you know, genie out of the bottle things. No, but, those are okay. very reasonable, doable wishes or visions for your office. I think those <laughs> okay. are great. Those are really good. They, they make a lot of sense in view of um, your career at UC Davis. So I, I think those are great. Well, Michael, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure if any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Uh, sure, they can reach me by email. Uh, the email is mdcarrier at ucdavis.edu. Again, it's mdmichaeldavidcarrier at ucdavis.edu. And I'd be happy to engage in uh, discussion, dialogue. Uh, it certainly will be a learning opportunity for me. So welcome any questions. Great. Well, thanks so much again, Michael. It's been really wonderful to have this opportunity to talk to you. My pleasure, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.